It's time to talk music, audio gear, and anything else that crosses our minds. I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. And welcome to the Hareton Audio Podcast. So we're going to do something that we haven't actually done on um, this podcast since we started it, and we're going to talk about ourselves. So we have had an interesting release process with our new single, Icebox, by Yesterday95, and um, what we've done is we've done a lot of, like, uh, obviously writing, mixing, mastering, but what we've done is we've sent this to be mastered at Metropolis to see the difference, really. And I think it's been a very educational process because we would normally, and this is going to get right into the production talk for everybody who who is a producer listening, we would normally master our own tracks. And why master your own tracks? Well, number one, you don't have to pay a lot of money because you can do it yourself. And number two, you know, with modern software, you know, you've got all the tools to master your tracks, or so you would think. And, you know, theoretically, you can master your tracks, but what we found when we saw or we heard what um, Metropolis could do and their engineers, we got um, Andy Hippie Baldwin when we uh, did the online mastering, which was um, a really, really good sort of service i really enjoyed it overall and it wasn't super super expensive or anything you know it wasn't like crazy and it was very fast turnaround but what he was able to do to our song was that age-old thing that everybody says is the reason why you shouldn't master your own music he was sat in a you know theoretically a, a perfect or great sounding room so when we got our mix back or our master back it wasn't so much the way that he'd processed the dynamics that had um, actually caught us out because, you know, the volume was somewhat to the tune of minus eight luffs or, or around there, which is, you know, perfect for uploading to streaming services and everything. But the overall EQ and way, like, we was convinced that it, it like, turned the sides up or done some stuff with the sides of the mix to to bring out certain elements like the backing vocals because it's... For the, for the sort of music we make, this is more of a narrow sounding song, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's more to the point rock music. So what he'd done is he'd, he'd really, really nailed the EQ on the song, which, you know, I know it sounds silly. I know most people who master music will be like, well, I always nail the EQ. Well, you may nail the EQ in your room or in your headphones or the, the places where you can find it, but maybe you haven't nailed it everywhere. When we did our playtesting thing, we found our masters, we had not nailed the EQ, but his, the EQ was like great in every room and the sort of body and warmth and everything was great in every room, whereas ours sounded good in our main studio, but didn't sound that fantastic in some of the other playback scenarios. Yeah, and some of the songs was a lot closer to, to what he had done, and some of the songs was a lot, lot further away. And also what this gave us is this gave us like a, a bench post to sort of say, a benchmark, sorry, to, to say, this is what we are looking for. And, you know, this is a decision that has been made by somebody who knows what they're doing that we can sort of look at and go well we just need to get as close as we can to this and that was the other thing as well we could no longer touch the mix we could no longer touch that master that song was set in stone which when a lot of people you know they talk about their music making and the procrastination side and the they're doing edits forever. Well, if you pay somebody to do a mix or master you've invested that money into that mix or master you're not 
you know, once you've got your single revision or whatever that service offers, you are not going to be saying, well, I want to go in there and tweak that snare. You can't. It's done. Somebody else has done it and you've paid for it. Unless you want to undo your payment for this mix or master, you know, you are stuck with that mix or master. And that, when you are finalizing 10 songs in an album like we were, that was like the best thing. We was like, Icebox is finished and we can't touch it. What we've got to do is we've got to get the rest of the songs to sound at least as good as Icebox. And that was, that made the full process a lot, lot easier. And also in this scenario, what it gives you is it gives you a taste of what your songs could sound like in this professional capacity. But obviously a lot of people don't have a lot of money to throw around. You know, you can't throw, um, you know, a couple of grand at mix engineers like Chris Lord Alge and then do this if you're not like a big, big band. So what's nice about doing it for one song is it gives you, if you're somebody who typically does everything yourself, it gives you an expectation and some sort of goal to reach. And then you can think, right, well, let me just keep revising the other songs and changing the EQ and changing the balance of the instruments until every song kind of feels like this in like a blind test to somebody who's not aware of what mastering is and not aware of these subtleties. And that's sort of the goal is to make it like a just noticeable difference. And also it gives you a good idea on what you're doing right. Like we listened back to the master, we went, well, the volume that we had set is in the right place. Yeah. So that that's the other thing is, is it was like a confidence booster for everything we got right. It was like, yes, well, we clearly know what we're trying to do. We clearly know how we're going about doing this. And then it was, so why did he do the things that we wouldn't have normally done? And what was there? And then it was just trying to think, right, well, how can we go about doing that on the other nine songs? Which, you know, mastering is a case-by-case basis. And what Icebox had is it had a very catchy chorus with a very distinct backing vocal sort of sort of coming in to lift the song up so that's not something you can necessarily do on the other songs because the other songs might not have that backing vocal moment on the chorus so you have to take what they've done with a pinch of salt when you're looking at it because obviously you can't recreate everything they've done because some of it is about the song and like to say on mix with the masters if the song isn't there it's it's tough you know yeah and it was very intimidating to actually send the mix in you know, we, we was listening to the mix that we'd done thinking, if we mess up this mix, it is going to mess up our master. And, you know, we won't be able to go back. So we really, really did mull over the mix. And, you know, we made some quite interesting decisions that like we had to kick in the snare very loud, knowing that it was going to be compressed and limited to a certain degree, even if the, the transients were just basically chopped off the tops. But, you know, there's nothing worse than listening to your mix back and the kick and snare just disappear into, like, the sludge. And that's what we was really worried about. So um, we we sent in a mix with quite loud kicks and snares, but that didn't really affect the dynamics of anything. It just made the kick and snare super, super, like, punchy in the master. But it didn't, you know, like, it didn't bring the entire headroom of the mix down, which a lot of people would have would be like, well... Yeah, well, by the time you've chopped all the transient off the kick and snare, you know, you're not going to have, you're not going to be able to bring the volume up. But it's like, well, you know, these are professionals and it shows you how you can do it. And also the thing is, is like the style of music we was trying to write with Icebox, we wanted a loud kick and snare. It wouldn't have worked if it had like a, you know, a very subtle kick and snare, like you hear on some of the 70s rock records where you can't even really perceive the kick on most speakers. Uh, and the snare is quite quiet, 
relatively. Obviously, we was going for more of a, a modern mix where the kick and the snare, a bit like what you could say Coldplay do, where Coldplay have the kick and the snare so loud it's unbelievable, but you really struggle to pick out, you know, like if, if for anybody who's not paying attention, um, you, you struggle to pick out the rest of the drums in context. It sounds like the kick and the snare drum are right in front of you and maybe the cymbals are at the other side of the room. That's that's how it sounds on, yeah. on more modern records. You know, there's a much bigger emphasis on the the rhythm, I suppose, of the kick and the snare and not so much like, uh, you know, if you listen to Van Halen, it's all cymbals. That's how you describe it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, we we wanted the opposite of that. We wanted it to be kick and snare forward and the cymbals need to be in the mix where you would expect them with the guitars and stuff, but they don't need to be, you know, thrashing the listener because, you know, cymbals can... And there's a few albums I've listened to where cymbals are really like a deal breaker in the mix. Yeah. And also, like, one of the most important things, vocal level, you know, especially if you are sort of mixing your own music. Um, people like Jimi Hendrix are famously quoted on just trying to bury his vocals in the mix because he didn't really like his voice very much. And then the engineers would be like, well, you know, you've got to be right at the top of the mix because that's what people are listening for. And he'd be like, well, people listen for my guitar playing. It's like, yeah, they do. But, you know, if you're singing in a song, people need to hear the words. And so it's very difficult because you've got to, in, in like, when you factor in mastering, if you put the vocals just above the music bed in your mix and then you send a stereo file, all the music is going to come up in that master, which means that your vocals are going to get quieter and quieter and quieter. And in some cases, they can just get completely lost in the mix. And we was watching mix with the masters and they was doing some very interesting things where they had this example of the vocals are a bit too quiet or a bit too loud. And the mastering engineers had very interesting ways of bringing just the vocal up within the context of a stereo file, which blew my mind because I didn't think you'd be able to have that much control, but obviously the tools they have and the knowledge they have at doing this particular thing in this environment, um, they don't have the luxury of being able to just turn the vocal up or down. So they have to have creative workarounds. And that's the sort of thing that that's interesting because just because you've sent a stereo wav in doesn't mean they can't turn something up. And that's what was interesting with the way um, Andy Baldwin was turning the sides up to accentuate like the... Um, the backing vocals on the chorus. Now, for all we know, he's automated the sides up and down. We don't actually know what, what he's done. We in could places. only take a rough guess. And, um, you know, it was very difficult to attain what he did. And we wasn't necessarily trying to clone it, but we was just trying to learn from what he had done to the song. And we thought pretty early on that it maybe be ran through tape or a tape simulator, because when we tried that in Ozone, it sort of sounded right. Because what we did, basically, we took our mix then and tried to master it the same as the one we got from Metropolis, where we got we got close, but we definitely, it wasn't perfect by any it, means. It wasn't a one-to-one. We, we got as close as we could in volume and frequency, but it's like, it's like we said, the, the automation, maybe, the, the way they've gone about doing things is what you can't recreate. It's very difficult to do something the same even with the same gear sometimes because like yeah. saying a lot of studios even if you have the same gear it's very difficult to get the same sound because it all it's all dependent on what the gear is doing how old it is you know some of it's like well these transformers were from the 70s and you've got a brand new one so it's therefore it is different yeah you know and that's the thing that's very difficult to describe with like the technical production also it's just knowing how to use it you know we were using um 
Shadow Hills mastering compressor, the one on Brinworks, um, for a lot of these masters, which we've never really used properly before, or we definitely haven't tried using that well properly. And um, that was a learning curve in itself because I was trying to Google what people actually do with it because it's very intimidating looking and it's not to be used the same as like a, a 1176 or, you know, like a LA-28. It's not the same type of compressor as them. Uh, people are actually complaining about how transparent and subtle it is. But again, you're mastering. You want transparency and subtlety. You know, it doesn't matter how hard you're compressing. You don't want to hear that pumping in a master. You want to hear just, you want to hear it bringing everything up in volume and, and squishing the transients down slightly, but in a way that you will almost wouldn't even notice. Yeah. And um, it's, it's like you say, it's, it's hard to explain mastering to people who aren't really aware of what the process is. Because the process has changed over time. It used to just be the mastering engineer got the, the mix off the analog mixing desk and made it work for vinyl or CD, which is much more of a process. Whereas now, mastering's like the finishing touches on a mix, really, uh, digitally. Because you can just take any file and just put it online now so you don't really need to have like a vehicle like a vinyl or a cd um if you're only releasing it to spotify because something that a lot of people don't know is that vinyl if you put too much bass or treble in a vinyl for example it the needle just flies off it you know if you have too deep of a sub hit the groove is so big that the momentum i believe that's carried out from the needle will just lift the needle off and it will either jump or just completely miss the vinyl when it lands which is why they had these mastering places in the first place. Because, you know, you're mass pressing uh, vinyl. Well, everybody's going to send it back if the needle flies off every time they listen to the And also, song. this is why music that was released on vinyl in the 60s, 70s and like 80s, I suppose, it's not as bassy as new music because it couldn't be. It yep. wasn't allowed to be that bassy. Um, so this is very interesting with like the, the re reemergence of vinyl. Um, because how some of them, because some of the tracks, like on Maddian's uh, vinyl that I've got, is very bassy, and I go, how? How is it very well, bassy? Well, there's, there's an easy way to do that. Turn the entire track down. So you have to turn it up more on your volume, yeah, so you have. On, on your amplifier, you just got to crank it. That's one way to do it, I would have thought. And another way will be, you know, roll-offs and stuff. Yeah, yeah, to, it, it's subtle so, things, isn't it? That, you that see, carve it out. In the original like analog studios they probably didn't care that much if things under 30 hertz were actually in the track you know they're i mean i know they'll have had you know high pass filters but i could see a lot of records being done where people you know on the mix aren't that bothered about cutting every anything under 30 hertz because they'll have been lucky to get that in some of the recordings like recording bass players and drummers you know they'd be lucky to get subs like that coming off microphones at times because you know, when you when you listen to... I mean, there's a reason we have so many sub-harmonic uh, synthesizers and reinforcements when you're mixing because it's very difficult to get the punch, like... Off a microphone. Off a microphone, you know, like when you're looking at a traditional drum kit. Um, and these are all things that people want to have when they listen to their tracks, but they're not necessarily things that happen in the room sometimes, like people want them. Yeah. And Icebox was the um, last track we actually recorded for this new project, but it 
came together so well that it's become the first track we wanted to put out, which was interesting in itself because, you know, albums, like if you're making a musical project, you know, or an album or an EP, you will have favourite songs as a the composer and then favourite songs just keep shifting and maybe one song's been a lot more difficult than another. And a lot of the time, you know, as they always say on songs, on things like Mixed With The Masters and classic albums, they will say the song that was the easiest to make is often the best one or the one that ends up becoming the hit single because, you know, if it's easy, it's easy for a reason normally. And Icebox didn't really fight us at any point and it came together very, very fast and there was no issues recording it. And like, these are the things that make it an ideal song to send off first because we was confident that there was no issues with it. Whereas there's other songs where you go, well, maybe this didn't go right when we was tracking drums or maybe we had to re-record the guitars because initially it wasn't what we wanted from, from like the sound or, you know, these are the things that that almost put you off your own your own tracks because you go well is this the best thing we could send and like you say with with something like metropolis you have a a sort of deadline and somebody who's not you to listen somebody where you can't explain to them in the room well when we was recording this happened and that happened it's just they've got a wav and that's all they have and they have that and a little bit of, of a note from you that just says however you want them to do it you can't be going well we had this issue when we was recording and we had that issue so could you please fix that and please they're not there to fix anything they're there to bring the track it does actually say in the small print on the metropolis thing they don't they don't actually on the service we use do the spot DSing and stuff like that which um, we saw on the Mix With The Masters Sterling Sound stuff, because that will be reserved for when you're actually doing a full, massive, big budget, sort of label-based project, really. You know, but it's just fantastic that you can actually go, you know, anybody can go to Metropolis Online Mastering and get it done by the same people who are doing these massive, massive industry acts. But you've got to be confident when you go in there, because you're like, well... If you send in something that's, you know, too bass boosted and recorded badly and and sort of like low fidelity or or you can actually send them something at the right luffs because we had to then bring the mix down in terms of luffs and send them it at the exact right sort of, you know, metering in order for them to do their process properly. And also like if you're a band, say you're a band member and you're not doing any of this technical stuff, you're either having to pay the engineer you're working with to do all this stuff to get it mastered, or you're having to hope that the the other guy in the band who's doing it is doing it right. Or that you have maybe a manager, because it, it felt like to me like this is the sort of thing where a manager or producer would step in to do this stuff uh, and actually pick Metropolis as a, a mastering studio. And it made me very curious to hear what it would sound like. You know, you see these YouTube thumbnails a lot where people are like, I sent my mix to four mixing engineers and the results were unbelievable, blah, blah, blah. You know, at different price points. Yeah, yeah. Because it does make me wonder after doing this, what would it sound like if you went for like a more low budget, you know, mastering service? And, you know, that's the question. You know, we went for basically, essentially the top of the sort of, the cream of the crop regarding mastering, you know, we didn't go for like just some dude who does it or some person who's, who's like set up and they can do it and they get, you know, like 
90% there. A bit like what we do when we master our own music. You know, we get there, we get where it needs to be, but is it the best it could be? Probably not, you know, because there's always going to be limitations, you know, but these are people where that's their nine to five. Their nine to five is mastering like as many tracks as they're, they're mastering a day. And that's all they do. So, and, you know, and they're in the ideal space. And that's what you pay for when you pick something like Metropolis. Yeah, and that's also like the level of quality and the level of practice that a lot of people who make their own music just don't have. Because when you're doing everything yourself, you're doing everything yourself because you don't have the luxury of being able to send every single thing off to different people, you know. Um, Sometimes it's very envious to look at some of the, the sort of bigger acts and think, well, all they do is the fun bit. Yeah. They just go in sing some stuff, play a piano, and then they say, everybody else, sort it out, I'll be back when it's done. Yeah, somebody comes in there and fixes it all, then somebody mixes it all, then it gets, you know, polished, and the creative mix, and then it gets mastered, and boom, it sounds unbelievable. And it should do for that processing chain of of people, especially, like, if you hear people like Chris Lord Alge be like, well, I have a guy that comes in and corrects everything before the mix gets to me in my mix, you know, pricing, so... He just literally throws up the faders and he starts having fun. He's like, well, where do I want a delay throw and what do I want the EQ to be and stuff like that? He's not fixing anything, you know, whereas when you record your own music, 99% of the time you will be sat there either tweaking your snare sound if you're like making dance music or you're that way inclined or you will be, if you are more of a rock-orientated or performance-orientated producer, you will be agonising over these parts that you've either played or sang and that's what really... I think, wears people down when they're making their own music and they're trying to mix it and finish it. It's also not very fun if you're going to mix a track and everybody looks at you in the band and says, that drum feel's not going to cut it. You yeah. know, that solo's yeah. not going to cut it. That rhythm guitar is all scratchy, do it again. Yeah. And then this is this is what makes recording so difficult for a lot of people. And this is why you have a lot of bands where, say, the rhythm guitarist and the bassist just go, I'm not recording, you do it guy who wants it perfect do yeah you know what i mean and that's a very very common case you see even with some bigger bands like there's metal bands i can't remember which ones where the guitarists just do all the rhythms leads and bass and the two other people in the band just play live because you know if you have a perfectionist in people get fed up of arguing with them when they're doing an album over years and yeah that's that's what happens or you have like drummers are just you know shafted as far as recording goes because a lot of drummers get told, well, if it's not on the grid, we'll just move it, you know, yeah. or we can just program it. Just don't even bother coming in. You yeah, know, that's what of... happens in a lot of the heavier genres is they just go, we'll just play it on Easy Drummer, so don't bother, you know. Yeah, or we'll do all the kicks. We'll just trigger all the kicks so you can just worry about hitting the hi-hat and the snare in like you know. a metal genre and stuff. That that happens a lot too. I, I think vocals and, and singing is what really gets tough with recording because for a lot of like, say, you're looking at like local bands or like uh, unsigned bands just trying to have fun, make the record they want. You know, it's so easy with the tools to just say, drummer and singer, you don't have a clue what you're meant to be doing. So we're just going to correct the singer everywhere we need to. So it's barely even what they sang. And then the drummer, they can record them in the room as the drummer walks out, just go, oh, we're not using any of that. Or they can just sample each it. Sample each drum and put it on MIDI triggers or whatever. It's so easy. That, or they can move it all and 
snap it to a grid with like in Pro Tools, it's it's very good. And I think all the doors now do this, um, where you literally can just snap all eight mics and just get all the kicks and snares on the beat. So it sounds theoretically perfect, but still like they sort of played it. But um, a lot of the time as well, though, drum triggers and snare replacement and stuff is a thing. So normally it's not what you played, it's not your drums. It's yeah, and then you think, as you say, Matt. Well, if it's not going to be what I played, and it's not going to be the sound of the, the sound of the drums, what's the point of me playing it? I might as well use Easy Drummer or something like that. That's that's the thoughts, and I think that's where you hear these stories of bands going into the studio. Even bands like Coldplay said this in their documentary, where they go into the studio and the band almost breaks up because it's so horrible to to a band that's you know they're in a room having fun, maybe playing some gigs, and they're just like, wow, we 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 rock, we're awesome. And they go in the studio and they, there's a guy sat there, he's like, yeah, you can't play. Yeah, you can't sing. Yeah, you can't tune your stuff. Your pedals are, are crap and stuff like that. And and all of a sudden, they're going to record this this dream of their album or EP, debut EP, and they're just being criticised almost non-stop. And that's where a lot of it sort of gets too hard for some of these bands where, you know, if you haven't gone through that already, you know, the first time you go through that, it's like, oh my God, am I even good enough to like play in this band? Especially if it's your band without your school friends and especially if three people are doing all right and there's one like, this is the the thing with, that they say with Will Champion in Coldplay. He was like the furthest behind and he almost got kicked out of Coldplay. I believe one of the producers did kick him out and he quit and then they had to try and get him back as well. Because, you know, it's so intimidating and, and, you know, all the egos get inflated because they're in the studio and and all of a sudden, you know, it's not this dream of recording their record. It's like a a nightmare. And there's so many, if you look for them, sort of documentaries where they describe like where they go into the studio and they, they almost never come out because... It's it just all goes wrong perpetually for the for the band and and the engineers. And what I will say is, like as a drummer, recording drums, recording drums is far from being fun. A lot of the time, you are laser focused on the click track. A lot of the time, um, I'm looking forward to maybe recording a little bit less without clicks because I've always traditionally recorded with clicks. But when you're doing a project like a lot of bands are and you've got an engineer who's like, we've got to record to a click because then I can fix everything. You know, because that's why you record to a click is if if there's a mess up for everybody, you've got the time that means you can like swap a bar or you can do this, you can, you, you know, can do a radio edit. something out, you can do a radio edit. You can't do these things when you don't record to a click. It's a lot, lot more difficult to correct something when the entire band is going 110 BPM on one section and 90 on the other, which happens so much. It sounds like such a big difference, but that is what happens to bands, particularly if you change uh, from normal time to double or half time, then the tempo goes wildly out in, in a lot of yeah, like jams it, and stuff. It might be that the band naturally jump up 75 percent which is a huge difference but not one that scales to the grid and like that's what they said to nirvana on classic albums is it was saying you know like um you speed up on lithium yeah yeah you know dave you keep speeding up on lithium he's like i don't think i'm speeding up he's like but dave you are you know and it's not fun even some what people look up to as the best drummers in the world they all have to fight these battles in the studio and a lot of people don't realize just how awful it is and like you say how deflating it is when you've had to record something and you think it's great and then somebody comes in. I can't imagine how tough it is on like the major labels for some but of the like drummers. It's like the famously like Bob Rock and Metallica. Bob Rock was just like, 
you, you rubbish. Or Tom or Petty's drummer yeah. with Jimmy Iovine was just constantly bickering all the time, you know. And that's that's not fun for any band in any studio. But, what did they say? They did Refugee 50 times. Yeah, something like that. But and because it, they was recording live, they wanted the entire band to get it in one go, which is like ridiculous, isn't it, on Refugee? And I think on the Oasis documentary Supersonic, they also say that they kicked their drummer out because they were sat there saying, we spend 99% of the record doing drums. And then everybody else comes in and does everything else like really quickly. So their, their solution to that was just to lose the drummer. Yeah, so it's tough. It's tough uh, playing drums in this sort of recording capacity because I think recording instruments is uh, not like playing them live. And that's the, the, the dilemma you have. Now, what me and Peter have when we're doing music is because we do everything ourselves, we get to choose what we want to do. So I'm very like anti-correction. Um, so I've had to get really good at playing to a click when playing drums. And Icebox as a whole, it's a pretty... it's. It's not a live recording, but it's made and played live. So it's it's like it's it's supposed to sound live, and it's supposed to have that energy and that you know that subtle sort of movement of things. You know, it's nothing is snapped to the grid, and even the keyboards are played live on Icebox. So you know, you're looking at something where there's been no auto tune and no quantizing, and that's just what we can do. You know, whether you like it or not is a different thing, but at least it's authentic for us. And that's that's the thing. I think if you're making music and recording it yourself, you've got to think, how do we want this to sound? You know, what is authentic for us? You know, are we a band that's going to sequence half the music? You know, because you can, and it'll be a lot, lot easier and probably funner if you don't care. Like a band like De- Depeche Mode found out the hard way in like the, the 80s or early 90s when they were they were sat there trying to play these electronic songs by hand and a producer came in and said, well, you could just sequence that with, with MIDI. And it was all like, well, isn't that cheating? <laughs> well, yeah, because at, at what point are they doing anything? I mean, I, I was almost flawed when I read on one of the Sound and Sound articles that the drums for some of the singles on Eliminator was just a drum machine and then Frank Beard just played cymbals over it, which when you listen to it, it's almost painfully obvious now. And this is easy top. For this is easy top, know. yeah. Um, but when you're growing up, you just assume that all your favourite musicians are playing every single note. And like, like say, on the new version of The Miracle, there is yeah. a version of Breakthrough that has drums and uh, real bass. Real drums and real bass, which which heavily implies, and you listen, you go, oh, crap, nobody played the drums and bass on, on Breakthrough. And that blew my mind as well. Because you just convince yourself, oh, they'll have triggered it. Oh, they'll have just had really cool, uh, really different like like technology that makes it sound that way. And then you realise, well, with the primitive technology they did have in the 80s, it was just easier for them to use a drum machine. And it was easier for them to, even if they was adding fills and playing bits, the, the core of the track, just being able to do the kick and the snare off a drum machine, kick, snare and hi-hat some of the time, is just easier. Uh, the only thing is with drum machines is they don't have very good sounding cymbals. So yeah. that's why you often hear the cymbals. And then if you hear the cymbals as a listener, you go, well, I can hear him playing the cymbals, so he must be playing all of it. Yeah. So let us know what you struggle with. And if you are making your own albums, did you find anything we said like relatable or useful? Or do you have a completely different process? Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week.